You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I am coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it is already the 10th of October 2012. Thank you all for tuning in once again for tonight's edition of the broadcast. And just on a bit of housekeeping note, I'd like to apologize to any of the people out there who were waiting for last night's episode to show up on my own website. Unfortunately, there was some problem with the recording on my end, so last night's video did not get recorded properly. So there is no video from last night's episode, but the audio is now up on the website, so you can get that, of course, from CorbettReport.com, along with all the show notes from last night's episode. Also, on another housekeeping note, uh, podcast episode 246 was posted on Monday, but because uh, Blip is having Blip.tv is having some problems converting the uh, the uh, video right now, it looks like I'm not getting a downloadable mp4 and if this is all gobbledygook to you out there that just means that i haven't been able to uh post that video to the website yet so uh, i'm trying to think of what else to do i'd like to be able to get an automated conversion from youtube or something but of course as you might not know out there my youtube channel doesn't allow for full-length uploads so if the owner of Take a Second Look News the uh, channel is out there listening, please get in touch with me. Unfortunately, I'm ashamed to admit I don't have you on my email speed dial, but I'd like to get in touch with you about uploading directly to your channel in the future because you've been doing such a great job of keeping that archive on your YouTube channel. But enough of that housekeeping and shop talk. Let's get to the meat and potatoes of tonight's conversation. Tonight we're going to be addressing a very serious topic that we broached on the program about a week and a half or two weeks ago. We were talking about pandemics and the types of emergency situations that can arise for whatever reasons that uh, that the powers that shouldn't be like to claim will give them the authority to do all sorts of things like enforce vaccinations and, and other things like that. So tonight we have, uh, as a guest on the program, we have Alan Phillips, JD, the attorney and counselor at law at vaccinerights.com. And just reading from his biography here, he is a leading U.S. vaccine rights attorney. He advises individuals, families, attorneys, groups, and organizations throughout the U.S. on vaccine exemption and waiver rights, supports legislative initiatives aimed at expanding vaccine freedom of choice, is published internationally on vaccine health and legal matters, and appears regularly at rallies, conferences, and on radio and TV shows discussing vaccine right issues and so he is in the right place i would say here on the program so i'll let you go and continue reading that biography there on vaccinerights.com for yourself but let's just bring him up on the on the show alan it's great to have you on the program tonight thanks for joining us well you're welcome it's a real pleasure to be here with you this evening well, it's great to have you here because this is such an important issue, and it is back on the uh, on the table once again, coming up in the headlines. For example, Rhode Island becoming the latest state to pass a mandatory vaccine uh, law for um, for medical workers, which we'll get into later in the program. But just here in the first couple of minutes, perhaps you can just introduce yourself and the work that you're doing there at VaccineRights.com. Uh, sure. My work falls into kind of two broad categories. One is uh, 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 my law practice where I focus solely on helping people with exemptions and waivers uh, in over a dozen different categories. It sort of depends on how you uh, count, but for me, any, any uh, area that involves a different, uh, different law – uh, I, I count as a different category or subcategory. So, of course, we're all familiar with school exemptions, but there's 
uh, public schools, private schools, home schools, military schools, colleges, a separate category, colleges for health care curriculums where, say, nursing students and med students and other programs have to do clinical work in local hospitals, and they run into a whole different situation, uh, not state-required vaccines, but the hospital policy requires vaccines. Um, Immigration, which includes foreign adoption, uh, people have a uh, different law there, uh, or they have vaccine requirements, have military, different branches, military families uh, as well, military contractors, all different areas where vaccines are required and, and different law applies. Uh, something that I refer to as vaccine custody disputes, where uh, the typical case where parents agree not to vaccinate the kids and then they divorce or separate and disagree about whether or not to vaccinate the kids, whole different way that those cases need to be approached and other kinds of custody cases. A uh, um, bewildering array of materials there. And unfortunately, so we're coming up against the first break, so we'll have to take a break, but we'll be right back once again talking to Alan Phillips, VaccineRights.com. All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to Alan Phillips of VaccineRights.com. I hope you will go there to check out the work that uh, Alan is doing at that website. There's tons of information there on all sorts of things related to vaccine rights, exemptions, waivers, and the tricky and sticky, thorny legal issues that one can wade into in all sorts of different aspects. And he was just going through some of the groups of people that he uh, works with uh, on these issues. And it's just bewildering how many different types of exemptions and waivers and situations and cases there are out there. So it is really, I would say for many people, a bewildering issue. And there's a lot of contradictory information on the internet about how to deal with vaccine exemptions. So uh, Alan, perhaps you can talk about the just the breadth and depth of this field and, and sort of your specialization in this work. Well, sure. When I first uh, jumped into this arena, and, and let me start by saying I went back to school after being out of school for 17 years, and I picked law school because of my concern about vaccines. So it really is very much a personal passion. I had been doing a little bit of writing um, before on the issue before that time, um, but I have found that it's just much broader and deeper than I originally thought it would be. And so I mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of the areas that I've worked with people. Uh, vaccines are mandated in many different areas in the U.S. that I wasn't aware of at all when I first started. And I see um, more and more mandates. I'm, I see, uh, for example, uh, healthcare workers, since the so-called pandemic, hospitals around the country had been mandating flu shots for healthcare workers, um, get the shot or you're out of here. And I'm seeing that the majority of the hospitals that I become aware of through my clients um, uh, from around the country are overstepping legal boundaries with the requirements that they're imposing on their own employees. And perhaps most disturbing of all is that I hear without any exception whatsoever, 100% consistency so far, every hospital worker that I've ever talked to, and I've worked with dozens of them from around the country at this point, they tell me that the work environment that they that they work in is a very uh, restrictive one. You're expected to do what you're told, not question anything, not challenge anything. If you have an opposing opinion, you keep it to yourself. And I have many uh, nurses and other healthcare workers call me or email me. They say, how do I avoid this flu shot? And by the way, there's five other people in my department who don't want the shot either, but they're afraid to even ask for an exemption because they're afraid they'll be singled out and fired. 
this is uh, disturbing to me that a healthcare professional is not allowed to voice, let alone act on, their own professional opinion about a healthcare matter. This is this is a very disturbing uh, scenario we have here. It, it is, and it goes right to the heart of this issue and the issues that surround vaccine exemptions, because obviously healthcare workers are on the front line, so to speak, of this this type of issue. So you, you mentioned that some of the uh, the hospitals are, are overstepping their legal boundaries in mandating these uh, vaccinations for their workers. What what are those legal boundaries, and where what what kind of gray area does this fall in? Well, for the most part, what I work with – well, let me back up a step. For the most part, hospitals are uh, mandating this as a matter of company policy. Now, there are some laws at the state level that mandate uh, vaccines for healthcare workers, and I think we'll probably see more of those laws. But either way, whether it's a company policy or a state law mandate – Federal civil rights law, and in particular Title VII of the 1964 Federal Civil Rights Act, requires employers um, not to discriminate against their employees for, for on many different uh, accounts, race, color, religion, sex, national origin, but for our purposes, uh, religion. And if you have religious objections to the vaccine or, or any need for what they call religious accommodation, employers are required to accommodate their employees' religious beliefs and practices unless it's going to cost them a bunch of money to do that or cause them some undue hardship is the phrase in the law. So with regard to religious accommodation, it doesn't matter – under federal law and under the First Amendment, whether or not you belong to an organized religion or which religion you belong to, if you do, you get to decide what your religious beliefs are. And you can be the only one uh, on the planet with your particular religious beliefs. If they are religious and if they're sincere, the employer has to accommodate you. But what I see in the vast majority of uh, hospital policies is they're saying you've got to have a member of the clergy back you up on this. Now, at first I thought, well... Am I missing something here because so many of the hospitals are doing this? But I very quickly got over that and realized that, yes, I'm real clear uh, and solid in my position about the law. Now, you never know it all. God willing, I'll keep learning more. But I feel really clear about this, and I've had some real strong validation from hospitals um, uh, and, and my clients uh, validating that my uh, understanding of the law is, is, is pretty much on, on target. Um, so when they do these uh, overreaching requirements where they want to have a member of the clergy back you up or they want you to be a member of a church with tenants opposed to immunizations, um, they're really overstepping federal boundaries with that. And I think increasingly I have, have, have been leaning more and more in the direction of they're doing this on purpose because they know that a lot of people will screen themselves out not knowing any better. Oh, I don't have a member of the clergy who can back me up. I guess I can't get the exemption. And if you do decide to challenge this, if you're a healthcare worker, if you are rejected, you ask for a religious accommodation or religious exemption to the vaccine and they reject you, your legal recourse as a starting point is to file a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the federal agency that enforces the anti-discrimination laws. Well, the good news is it doesn't cost you anything to file a complaint with the EEOC, but the bad news is it's a federal agency, and it can take several months for that to play out. So the hospitals and employers have the leverage here. You know, they can sort of call your bluff. Are you willing to take several months to see how this plays out? And meanwhile, they're going to um, terminate you. Or other situations, uh, people on the other side have the leverage. You know, are you willing to sue a school, for example, a private school, to make them take your child – um, 
you know, if they're rejecting your child, even though maybe you're in a state, and this varies from state to state, but even if you are in a state where the private schools do have to accept a religious exemption. But let me just say one other quick point, um, because the the full conversation is, is an involved one that we don't have time for tonight, but in general and in brief, what qualifies for a vaccine religious exemption is really, really broad. Uh, many people say, oh, I'm not a Christian scientist or Amish, I guess I can't have a vaccine exemption. You know, it doesn't matter what church you belong to or whether you belong to any church at all. Anybody who's not an atheist can potentially qualify. And in the employment law arena, under federal civil rights law, there's even a narrow category of beliefs that you could hold as an atheist that are protected by federal law. Now, it's not any sincerely held belief, but the definition of religious belief in this arena is exceedingly broad. I've never had to tell a client. I mean, there's a first time for everything, but so far I've never had to tell a client, I'm sorry, you just don't qualify. What I do have to tell clients and and help them uh, avoid are what I refer to as illegal pitfalls because as to what specific beliefs do and don't qualify, sometimes that is not consistent with common sense. So many times when people are dealing with exemptions and waivers, you check a box, you sign a form, nobody needs to hire an attorney to do that. But if you're in a situation when you have to state your beliefs, that's a place where I recommend that people do consider getting professional help because there are some legal pitfalls. And if the people on the other side do their homework, they can reject a lot of people um, who aren't aware of, uh, in more detail of how the law works. we got a real classic example of this in New Mexico. They just recently changed the law where now, starting with the current school year, to exercise a religious exemption, parents have had to state their religious beliefs. And I have heard anecdotally that they're rejecting people left and right down there because they are doing the very reasonable thing of writing down what they think their beliefs are and what qualifies and so forth, and and many times they're being rejected. So it's a tricky arena to be sure. It certainly is, and the religious exemption is is one category, but I'm given to understand there's something known as conscientious objection as well that doesn't rely on religious beliefs. Is this just a, a myth, or is this something that only applies in certain states, or, or is there some other category altogether? Well, there are, loosely speaking, three different exemption categories, medical, religious, and then philosophical or personal beliefs, what I think you refer to as conscientious. There are roughly 20 states that with regard to school exemptions will have uh, all three of those options available. Uh, However, I recommend even if you're in a state that has the philosophical exemption that you consider the religious exemption and see if you don't qualify for that. And the reason is that with the religious exemption, even when your starting place is a state uh, statute, you also have federal First Amendment rights. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution includes what's called the Free Exercise Clause that refers to the free exercise of religion. And a state religious exemption law also comes with federal First Amendment rights. Federal law is a higher legal authority than state law. So you have that additional federal legal right with a religious exemption that you don't have with a philosophical exemption. Now, I think every state should have a philosophical exemption. In fact, I don't think vaccines should ever be mandated at all, and I can give you a long list of reasons why I feel that's the case, Um, not the least of which, and perhaps the most simple and direct, is, is the reality that vaccines can and do cause permanent disability and death. And nobody can tell you if you or your child will be the next victim of a vaccine. Um, so just right there, 
uh, uh, it seems to me that no one should ever be absolutely required uh, to take a vaccine uh, with like that no kind of – no one should be a, required to play Russian roulette no matter how many empty chambers there are in the gun. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. I may quote you on that. <laughs> If I may, <laughs> please do. It's, that's a real nice, real nice analogy. I like that. Um, and of course, we're told over and over again. Well, it's a net benefit. This is the price we pay for the wonderful, you know, millions of people saved by vaccines. But uh, the reality is that both the FDA and CDC, among other uh, uh, people and, and agencies and entities, have told us in recent years that ninety to ninety-nine percent of vaccine adverse events are never even reported. So there's no data available for anybody to calculate whether there's a net benefit from vaccines. We just, we don't know. And again, the fact that we don't know is another reason why I think uh, nobody should ever be absolutely mandated to get a vaccine. Absolutely right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. We're coming up against another break, but we'll be right back once again. Alan Phillips, VaccineRights.com. All right, friends, welcome back. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. This is James Corbett of CorporateReport.com, and tonight we're talking to Alan Phillips of VaccineRights.com about the messy legal world that comes with vaccine exemptions and waivers when we start talking about all of these various uh, states uh, that have a mishmash and hodgepodge of different um, exemptions and waivers and things, it can be an extremely complicated issue for anyone to, to really wrap their head around fully. So that's why there is so much information out there online, but we have to be careful that some of it is perhaps not all accurate. So, uh, so Alan, I understand that you have written uh, the authoritative guide to vaccine legal exemptions that's available there on vaccinerights.com. Let's talk a little bit about this ebook. Sure. You know, just as many people feel that uh, with regard to the vaccine issue in general, uh, there's a certain body of information you need to have to be able to make an informed decision. And, and in particular, you need to go beyond sort of the mainstream uh, authoritative uh, uh, positions and statements because uh, there's a lot more to the story uh, than just those uh, views and positions and, and statements. Well, in a similar sort of way with the vaccine exemption waiver arena, um, I feel that there's a, a minimum body of information that people need to have uh, in terms of understanding about how the law works in order to make informed decisions about vaccine exemptions and waivers. Uh, as you mentioned, and it's a real sensitive area for me, there is a lot of uh, well-meaning but ultimately uh, uh, incomplete or misinformation on the Internet. Many anti-vaccine websites uh, uh, have terrific information about why you might want to postpone or delay or do an altered vaccine schedule or maybe even forego vaccines altogether. When they start talking about the uh, legal arena, the rights and procedures, uh, in my experience, most of the time they end up with a mixture of accurate and inaccurate information. It's just that the the legal systems we have in this country are just more complicated than most people realize. And uh, uh, to me, it seems that they mirror the complexity of our society. When you think about it, we have an enormously complex society, and our legal system um, – I believe mirrors that complexity. So um, in any event, um, it's really important to get your information from a, an authoritative source. You know, if you want to know what the law is, 
it's better to go look at a statute or regulation than it is to ask somebody on a Facebook group, although you can get a lot of great moral support and practical information from Facebook groups and Yahoo groups and so forth. Um, in any event, uh, my ebook was uh, in part a response to seeing the lack of complete and in-depth and accurate information on the Internet, so I pulled together that information from my research on the law and my experience working with exemptions and waivers now for going on close to 10 years, uh, working with people in many different exemption arenas and around the country. And this is now in an ebook available uh, at vaccinerights.com. Uh, called, as you said, James, the Authoritative Guide to Vaccine uh, uh, Legal Exemptions. And there's some information in there that is general to about uh, how our legal systems work. Then there's information specific to vaccine uh, exemptions and waivers, and most uh, more so than otherwise regarding religious exemptions, because that's the exemption that's available to more people more of the time, and the one that is also legally more complicated. Uh, to get a medical exemption, you usually have to have a medical doctor involved, and so that'll be at least uh, initially and primarily between you and a medical doctor. And the philosophical exemptions, where they're available, you don't really need um, legal advice to exercise those. You just need to know what the correct procedure is, and you can usually find that uh, uh, from the available uh uh, let's say health departments, for example, or uh, you can go online. There are, in fact, my website, uh, vaccinerights.com, links to three other sites that post school exemption laws, for example. So you can usually get that information reliably online or even go to your own state's website uh, and look up your own state statutes uh, and regulations, health department regulations there. Um but uh, as we've already hinted uh, in this show this evening, there are a lot of areas in which exemptions and waivers are more complicated uh, than just uh, signing a form or writing a short statement or checking a box on a form or something like that. And so sometimes it isn't as straightforward as we would like it to be. And so to have a source of information you can go to that will help you understand more about how all of this works – and you can make an informed decision. You can understand better when you might need an attorney or not need an attorney. Don't go hire one if you don't need one. But if you need one, go get one because it's very difficult to come back and fix this after the fact. You put out a statement of religious beliefs that turns out to have some sort of legal flaw in it, and then you're in the position of saying, uh, oops, what I meant to say was – you know, it's kind of hard to recover in, in that situation. So you want to get it right the first time. And, and this is true with, with any important legal matter, exemptions and waivers or anything else. Um, a lot of times, I tell you, attorneys make a lot of money trying to bail people out of situations that they could have avoided altogether. They've just done an inexpensive consultation up front. Um, so, you know, something to think about in this arena or any important uh, legal arena. Exactly right. Well, okay, excellent. So, again, people can find out more information about how to purchase this from vaccine, vaccinerights.com, and there's a link to either purchase an ebook that you can download or you can get a physical CD delivered to you. So, the, uh, all the information is there on vaccinerights.com. We're heading up to another break, so let's take a short breather. And when we come back, we'll continue talking about uh, the vaccine rights and exemptions and specifically what happens in times of pandemic response emergencies. So, uh, emergency response, I should say. So, if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, the phone lines are open 1 800 313 9443, especially for anyone out there who actually believes that there 
should be examples of mandatory vaccination laws. If you want to make that case, I always get emails from people who uh, want to try to make that case. So if you want, we'll open up the phone lines. We'd like to hear your position. So 1-800-313-9443. We'll be back right after these messages. Friends, welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. Once again tonight, we are talking to Alan Phillips from VaccineRights.com, and he is uh, here to answer questions about vaccine exemptions and waivers and all of the incredibly sticky legal issues that surround this very important topic. So once again, if you have a comment, question, or would like to get your opinion in, 1-800-313-9443. Alan, let's talk about something that I, I broached on the the. On the broadcast here a couple of weeks ago, where I had a, a broadcast about pandemics and what kinds of things can happen during pandemic emergencies. For example, we saw the swine flu pandemic and all of the very interesting things that came out of that, including the furtherance of an emergency state health powers act or something along those lines, which has been proposed and which is being adopted by more and more states which, as far as I understand, theoretically would give um, some of these states the right to uh, impose mandatory vaccinations during declared emergencies. But I'm hazy on the legal uh, specifics of this. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about this and about your uh, website, PandemicResponseProject.com. Well, it's an evolving story, to be sure. Um, During the so-called pandemic, the World Health Organization changed the definition of level six, the highest uh, category f- uh, for level of severity of pandemics and over the objections of several countries so that they could classify what was a very mild disease, the swine flu, which was far less um, uh, problematic than the seasonal flu was. Uh, but once they changed that definition, it triggered contract clauses with pharmaceutical companies around the world for the sale uh, sale of about $18 billion worth of vaccines, most of which were never even administered. Even the British Medical Journal, a very reputable mainstream medical publication internationally known, criticized the World Health Organization um, for their handling of this. So it was uh, really a... a a new level of bold and daring of uh, grab for the money here. But um, I got a lot of calls during the pandemic from people saying, well, what do I do if they mandate this swine flu vaccine? How do I uh, avoid it? And that was a new question for me because up until that point, I had only been dealing with people who were trying to avoid routine immunizations. And what I very quickly learned was that when a state uh, declares an emergency, the legal landscape changes instantly. Most states now have laws where if the state declares an emergency and mandates an emergency vaccine, your non-medical exemptions go out the window. And I've even seen a couple of laws that throw the medical exemption out the window, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. And this came from what you referred to, a Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. This was something that was put together and the CDC began pushing it on states. Now, this was a model act. It was initially not law anywhere. It was proposed law. But the CDC began pushing this on states three months after 9-11, which uh, many of us feel was not an accident. They were. It was a very deliberate plan, uh, I believe. But in any event, they were riding that wave of fear and trauma that had just swept the country. And that was an environment that made it much easier to pass 
overreaching laws. And many different people and organizations criticized this model law, saying it lacked proper checks and balances. It was granting sweeping powers to states. But many states passed uh, at least some part of this model act uh, since 9-11. And so we have a condition now where many states can mandate an emergency vaccine and your option to say no thank you in terms of available state exemption law uh, may be very limited or even non-existent. And if you refuse the vaccine anyway, in many state laws, they can quarantine you and they get to decide where. And I tell you, um, I have spent many, many years either completely ignoring or, if I did anything, laughing at many of the so-called conspiracy theories, just sort of you know saying there are crazy people everywhere. But I have seen more and more evidence over recent years pointing me back in the direction of at least some of these so-called conspiracy theories. For example, in February of 2009, Baxter, a leading international pharmaceutical company, sent um, a contaminated vaccines uh, to Europe. Uh, and by chance, because it wasn't a requirement, some Czech uh, doctors tested the vaccine on some ferrets and it killed all the ferrets and they looked into it. These vaccines contained live avian bird flu virus mixed with um, seasonal flu virus. And the medical people that I've spoken to, uh, James, tell me that this is not something that could happen by accident. It's not the sort of thing that one psychotic rogue employee who has a key could slip in at night with a little test tube full of bird flu virus and you know, uh, pour it into a vat somewhere. Uh, this is something that a group of people would had to have known. They used what's called a bio-level safety three protocol, very, very strict protocols when they're working, especially with live viral uh, components in developing vaccines. I can't think of uh, very many reasons why somebody would do that. The two that, and it's speculation, frankly, and admittedly on my part, but the two that come to mind is they either were trying to make a lot of people sick so they could sell them the solution, or they were trying to kill people. But in either case, it seemed to be a blatant disregard for potential harm that it could cause people. Uh, And these are the sorts of things uh, that come up um, uh, in one form or another over and over again that, that make me just wonder what is really going on behind the scenes here? Who's orchestrating it? What's the end game? And I don't have answers to these questions, but I see enough uh, documented uh, uh, things going on, um, behaviors and events, that these questions uh, become very reasonable questions for us to ask and, and to be looking for answers to. Well, as you point out, at the very least, there's the the monetary concern that they have invested literally, quite uh, quite literally, in the, in these drugs that they're selling as the solutions to the problems that they themselves might be able to create. So that's obviously a a, a problem that requires some sort of outside check or regulation, and uh, people might be able to cast their mind back to Bayer Pharmaceuticals being caught uh, knowingly shipping uh, HIV tainted factor eight drugs to uh to south america and to asia basically dumping it in those markets because uh they couldn't sell it legally in america and uh there was a an investigation that that determined that that was in fact what took place and uh as far as i know actually no prosecutions resulted from that but i i may be wrong on that matter but again they they ended up um many years later but they ended up paying tens of millions of dollars to settle a lawsuit on that but um for a long period of time, it was many years. I don't have a number for you, but many years, nothing happened. But this is another thing that really bothers me. You know, uh, Baxter, I mean, excuse me. Um, Bayer? 
I'm trying to think. Uh, it'll hit me in a minute, and I'm drawing a blank. There was a um, Glaxo. GlaxoSmithKline just recently paid a billion dollar, that's with a B, billion dollar criminal fine, two billion dollar civil fine. Uh, Pfizer, back in 2009, a $1 billion criminal fine and $1.3 billion civil fine. In, in Pfizer's case, um, because it was the fourth time they'd been caught doing the same behavior since 2002. Now, these are the you know, the uh, exceptions to the rule in terms of how large these fines were, but fines, criminal and civil fines in the hundreds of millions of dollars are common in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, we should be very concerned about this. This is an industry that routinely engages in criminal behavior. Now, they pay the fines, nobody goes to jail, and they keep on going about their business. Apparently, it's just a numerical calculation for them and it must be a net gain or they wouldn't keep doing the same behavior over and over again. Baxter, uh, um, Baxter, no, Glaxo had set aside three and a half billion dollars and lucky them, they ended up only paying three billion. You know, they came out ahead in that one and I'm not meaning to suggest that they were happy to pay a three billion dollar fine, but, uh, um, they keep doing this, and in the uh, pharmaceutical industry, in the healthcare industry, when you engage in criminal behavior, um, people's lives are at risk uh, or affected, and, and this is really disturbing. So just on a purely philosophical level, for example, tying this back into vaccines, I don't think anybody should ever be required to take a product from an industry that routinely engages in criminal behavior. It just doesn't really... You know, make any sense uh, exactly on that right. level. And again, tying that back into the swine flu phenomenon, we saw the Council of Europe come out with their investigation, which basically concluded that indeed there was financial motivations behind the people who helped to declare that pandemic emergency at the WHO level, who had ties to the to the boards of some of these vaccine manufacturers, who made billions of dollars in profits because the declaration of pandemic actually necessitated the production and, and purchasing of these vaccines by various uh, WHO members. It's uh, it's just an atrocious state of affairs. But, but regardless of how these pandemics develop, uh, it does raise the very real question of what people can do in those situations, or is it simply too late once the pandemic has been declared? Is there something that people can and should be doing before we get to that situation to make sure that this type of situation doesn't develop? Well, as I started looking into this to, to see what people's rights were on a, on a more purely legal level, what I found myself uh, answering uh, as subsequent people continued to contact me and say, what do I do? My answer became, do whatever you can now to avoid being in that situation in the first place, because once you get there, I'm not sure what you can do. Um, and so I think this is an issue uh, among many others in what I call the, the vaccine rights arena generally that is uh, – Primarily, um, or in very large part, a legislative agenda item. And so I created uh, a project that I called the Pandemic Response Project because it was exactly that, a response to the pandemic. And the goal of the Pandemic Response Project is legislative change, primarily at the state level around the country, to change the emergency health laws so that people do have a right to say uh, no thank you for uh, religious or philosophical reasons uh, should a vaccine be mandated, uh, an emergency vaccine be mandated pursuant to some sort of an emergency, and so that people do have the right to, for example, uh, do a quarantine in their home. That, okay, if you want to tell me I have to be quarantined because I'm not going to get a vaccine, all right, I can deal with that, but, you know, don't pull me out of my home and throw me in a government facility somewhere. 
And um, these are very real possibilities under many current state laws that they can say, nope, there's no exemption. And if you still flat out refuse, they can quarantine you. And, and in many cases, they get to decide where and for how long and so forth. So the laws that have been passed, they're going to vary from state to state. So everybody has to look at their own state's laws on the issue. Um, but some of them are, are – uh, many of them are overreaching and uh, uh, raise quite a concern to those of us – uh, who would like to have the right to refuse uh, vaccines uh, wherever they may be uh, required or, or recommended. Well, let's talk about the legislative activism uh, movement and, and where that stands right now, because this is a topic that is so far removed from the, the minds of so many Americans. It's hard to imagine that there's a large movement behind this, whereas there's obviously a lot of monetary and other interests behind pushing this type of uh, emergency pandemic declarations. So so what uh, what is the state of this movement and where where has it uh, where has it come from? and Where is it going? Well, let me start first by saying that um, I have spent uh, – I'm very particular to the best of my ability to be careful about uh, the words I choose, the things I say, uh, supporting uh, as best I can with credible references and so forth, any assertions that I make because my own credibility and my own clarity and understanding on this issue um, is critical to me. And I am not the kind of person to resort to sensationalism, for example, in order to try to uh, stir people's emotions or, or what have you. But even I have found myself in recent months using a phrase, uh, vaccine police state, because what I see happening on multiple levels and in an increasingly aggressive manner is the pharmaceutical pro-vaccine agenda playing out uh, on multiple levels, and in many cases, overstepping boundaries, uh, legal boundaries. I mentioned earlier in the healthcare arena where uh, hospitals are implementing policies that are in violation of Title Seven of the 1964 Federal Civil Rights Act. And I see legislatures, state legislatures around the country now in, in the last several months, several, maybe half dozen or more states have passed new laws restricting access to exemptions for parents uh, and their children in school, for example. And in at least a couple of instances, I think the laws are unconstitutional. Um, and, and this has been a very sobering lesson for me. Um, the technical reality is that whenever a legislature passes a law, it is deemed to be constitutional unless and until a court formally rules and holds uh, adjudicates that it is unconstitutional. What this means is, as a practical matter, is that legislatures can enact any law they can get the votes for. So they all take oaths to uphold the state and federal constitutions, but where the rubber meets the road, they ignore that oath many times, and they just say, well, um, you know, we're going to pass whatever we want to pass, and uh, for political reasons. And then if somebody thinks it's unconstitutional, well, it's up to them to find out how to get that into court and get a judge to rule on it. Um, I'll give you a really glaring example that is, is particularly disturbing to me. Here in my own home state of North Carolina, there is a law that allows children of any age to consent to any vaccine and some other medical treatments and procedures without their parents' knowledge and consent. And this law is not uh, – it's blatantly unconstitutional. Uh, I sat down across the table with my state senator, now former state senator, fortunately because I recently moved uh, across the state in North Carolina – 
sat across from this this woman who I have great admiration for. She's helped me in the past. She's done a lot of good work with the state legislature. And I had in my hands a formal legal memorandum that I had researched and written. And then the short story is that this law in North Carolina conflicts with four state and federal statutory provisions and four state and federal constitutional provisions. It's a really, really bad law, and it was enacted supposedly for a purpose that is already covered by other laws, and so it's a completely unnecessary law. And I made these arguments to my state senator, and she didn't disagree with me on any single one of those points. But she looks me straight in the eyes and she says, I can't help you. We have the University of North Carolina hospitals in our district. Now, I'm not even sure what that means specifically, but I want to glean a general uh, a lesson from this, which is what's going on in the country with uh, uh, legislation. Okay, hold, hold and in the ve- for just one second. Again, we're coming sure. up against a break, but we'll be back to wrap things up and uh, get some final comments right after these messages. Turn it off! I want my All right, friends, welcome back. This is the closing moments of tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, as always, James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Tonight we've been talking to Alan Phillips of VaccineRights.com. And just before we were so rudely cut off by that last break, we were talking about a very important point, and you were sort of summarizing uh, the the main lesson to be learned from from this pandemic uh, response emergency powers and all of this. Uh, Perhaps you can pick up from what, what we were saying there. Well, let me, if I may generalize, because I know we're running out of time here, but there are, there's a movement around the country, uh, states enacting laws, uh, restricting access to exemptions, making it harder for people to get exemptions. This has happened in, in Washington State, California, New Mexico, Vermont, uh, Rhode Island. There's pending legislation in New Jersey and other states. Um, the train is rolling forward at full speed. Uh, I mentioned hospital uh, workers, but I'm hearing from entirely new categories of uh, uh, employees. Um, the CDC's goal is to revaccinate all adults. The healthcare workers are on the front lines, but it's only the front lines. We're all in the sites. And this is something that's going to keep rolling forward if we don't become involved. Now, fortunately, uh, a nonprofit organization called the National Vaccine Information Center has put out what they call their advocacy portal. It's nvicadvocacy.org, nvicadvocacy.org. Anybody can join for free and, and sign up, and you can easily keep tabs on what's going on in your state regarding vaccine legislation and around the country and very quickly find out who your representatives are and very quickly. So no, you no longer have to take on a new part-time job if you want to be legislatively active in this arena. You can do it very simply. So I encourage people to go and sign up and, and keep tabs with what's going on in your state and around the country. This is going to keep going. Uh, uh, it's going to become tougher and tougher. And, of course, more and more vaccines are being required of more and more people. Um, a figure I had two years ago, uh, James, was that there were over 330 vaccines either already on the market or in development. There is no light at the end of this tunnel. There's always another vaccine to give a person, and there's always another person to give a vaccine. And the, the uh, estimated uh, uh, gross profits internationally just this year, 2012, are expected to be about $38.8 billion, and that's increasing at about 11% each year. So there's just incredible incentive to push more and more vaccines, to make more and more vaccines be mandatory on more and more people, and to restrict people's access to exemptions. And we're going to have to get involved um, if we want to uh, stop that and roll it back in the other direction. 
exactly right. We can't give up on this issue because it's the uh, what's at stake is just too important. And again, there is just too much information to possibly go over in one hour of radio broadcast. So uh, we will have you back on in the future to continue talking about this topic. But in the meantime, could you direct people to your websites once again? Certainly. Uh, VaccineRights.com. Lots of good free information there um, about uh, vaccine rights uh, issues and information about the different areas in which uh, ex- vaccines are mandated and exemptions then become an issue for many people. And then, of course, the ebook as you mentioned earlier, uh, which is a low price for the uh, abundance of information you'll get from that and not available anywhere else. And one of the few places that you can really comfortably rely on the information, um, I've been researching this for years. I've been uh, working with uh, clients around the country in a variety of different exemption uh, contexts. So um, you never know it all. I'm always learning more, God willing, but um, got a good handle on a lot of it at this point and happy to help anybody I can um, and to help legislative activists around the country, something I do uh, on a volunteer basis. Excellent. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but once again, if anyone did miss Alan Phillips' website, the links will be there in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com. Alan Phillips, absolutely fascinating topic. Thank you so much for sharing your insights tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, friends, that's going to do it for another edition of Corbett Report Radio, but I will be back 23 hours from now to talk to you once again. So thank you all for listening tonight, and take care.